Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. Well, good morning again. Let's try that one more time. Good morning again. There you are. It's good to see you this morning, Covenant family. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 20. Uh, While you're turning, uh, we do, if you did not receive the message already, I just want to remind you we have a meeting today. It's right after the 11 o'clock service, if at all possible. Uh, I would like for you to be here. We have some things that are not all pleasant, but they need to be shared with you. Um, And so these are the kinds of things also that are best communicated face-to-face, and your leaders owe that transparency to you. Um, I do want to clear something up, though. You have to forgive me. The the things that we're going to discuss came very suddenly to us as well. We just learned of this on Wednesday. And so sometimes when you're scrambling to try to do the right thing and to try to get the meetings arranged and everything else, you miss what might be misunderstood by your people. And so I've received several private emails, messages from some of you, uh, and also through our office asking two questions. Uh, Is this about Pastor Joel? And is he leaving? No, it is not. And no, I am not. Okay. Um, I, I just want to be, I, I want to be clear about that. And, and not just to say that, but probably just to give you some, some peace of mind on that question relative to how we're governed as a body. Okay. I'm not the only pastor here. There are nine men of God here uh, who shepherd alongside of me. They give me the honor and distinction of being the lead pastor. I'm the one who preaches to you most Sundays, but don't let the microphone in the spotlight fool you. I do not do this alone. And out of those nine, three of us are actually on the payroll here. Those, the other six men donate their time to the body of Christ and to shepherding them well. And of that six, there are two, Bob McHenry and Jeff Kellogg, who serve as executive elders. And those two men collectively conduct my annual review every single year. They set my salary and they hold me accountable. So there is no one here, me included, who is above the Word of God or who can somehow step outside the lines and and do anything. And I tell you that for this reason. If this event or any event for that matter had involved me, God forbid, and pray for your pastors in 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 that front, Uh, If it had involved me doing anything to disqualify myself biblically, to break the trust of God's people, those other six men would have a responsibility, and I know them, they would fulfill that responsibility, even as much as they love me, to stand in between you and me. That's another way of saying, if this had been me, you would not have gotten correspondence from me. It would have come from someone else, okay? Uh, Because again, no one is above God's word here. No one. No one rises above the authority of Jesus. We're all here to serve him and to, and to honor the chief shepherd. Um, and, and so it wasn't about me. I'm also not leaving. God has not released me. The other shepherds that serve alongside of me have given no indication that it's time for me to be released. I'll work alongside them as well, and we discern God's will together. But I also want to tell you Though I, and I do apologize for, I, I know a message like what I sent to you a couple of days ago can be unsettling. I don't want to be released. 
Okay? I, I don't. I, I know that there are some things that we're going to have to deal with. We've already talked with some leadership groups that were close to the situation that I'll be describing for you this afternoon. Um, and, and there's some hurt, and there's going to be some healing that's going to have to happen. Thank God it had nothing to do with abuse of a child or an adult, and so we're, we're thankful for that. But in the midst of that, I'm reminded that if everything is always happy-go-lucky in your church, the enemy is not fighting you. And if the enemy is not fighting you, that mean he does, it means he doesn't see you as a threat. And I'm reminded of that through this, that through being through several good and bad things with you over these last six years, that regardless of the context, what a high, holy privilege it is to be a pastor, and even higher so in this environment to you. And so, no, it's not, and no, I am not, even though I don't really look forward to this afternoon any more than you do. The Lord gives me great joy, and I want you to know not only that I wanted to answer your question around that today, but I am profoundly thankful. I am honored to shepherd such a people as you. I love you, and we will get through this. The Lord Jesus is more powerful than this, and he will lead us. The chief shepherd will guide all of us, and I look forward to beginning that process with you this afternoon. And we know that ultimately he's going to take care of everything, don't we? One day he's returning. And so we are in the middle of a series called The Return of the King. I don't yet have my text messages yet. I was supposed to get those, and I, I think maybe they're still working on that. But we are going to do a book giveaway today. Maybe I'll do that at the end of the service today. I told you at the outset of this that uh, because of the nature of preaching, it, you probably can't cover everything, right? You're going to have all kinds of questions that probably are not going to be answered, or if I did answer them, this whole series might take a couple of years, all right? And so today, what we're doing is we're giving away uh, a couple, we're going to give away a couple of these books. This is a book first published in 1977, and I have yet, almost 50 years later, to find its equal when it comes to comparing and contrasting the various views around what we're going to talk about today, which is the millennium. Revelation chapter 20 describes a millennial kingdom, and it, it's interesting to me, uh, people who agree on the authority of Scripture sometimes come to different conclusions around what that means. And in 1977, Dr. Robert Klaus from the University of Iowa, professor of history at Indiana State University, gathered some of the leading scholars of his day, representing the full spectrum of those millennial views. He allows each of them in this book to express their view, why they believe it, to give their biblical grounding for what they believe. And then he allowed the other three to respond to him. So this is about as comprehensive as it gets when it comes to that study. And we're going to draw a couple of names here in just a second. I think I'm, yep, I got them right here. And so uh, they, just, they just came up. Now, here's the thing. I know that some people are going to look at winning a book like this like, wow, I'm going to get all my questions asked. This is going to be amazing. I know that other people who get a book like this are going to be like my children who, I will admit to you, often go to their mother for Bible questions. They don't come to me. And the reason they do that, I have learned over the years, is because sometimes they just don't want to know that much about it. Okay, if that's you, I understand that. I'm sympathetic to that. But even if you're one of those people and you win the book, go on out in the foyer after the service and you can claim your prize. And if you're not real crazy about it, nobody, least of all me, is going to be offended by you going, hey, free book. 
okay? Uh, because I guarantee you there's a nerd in this crowd somewhere that didn't win it, and they're going to want it, and you're going to make a new friend, all right? So, so regardless of how this works, uh, I look forward uh, to just kind of seeing who wins this today. And the names for the books are Joan Garvin and Doris Myers. So you can go out afterwards. Sure, give them a hand. That's fine. Um, and you can claim your prize. Just go right back to the check-in station, basically. And they, they will give you your copy of that. All right. Um, and I think I know those two ladies well enough to tell you they're, they're probably not giving it away, but sorry. Um, but I, I would commend that resource to you. Uh, and that brings us to Revelation 20. This is one of the most debated texts around Jesus' second advent scholars, students of Scripture around the world, and it's kind of interesting, they may be in full lockstep on nearly every other doctrine, whether it's the inerrancy of Scripture or the substitutionary atonement or the bodily resurrection of Jesus, or even this unanimous consent that Jesus will one day fully and literally come. When it comes to the meaning around a text like this, it's interesting how those people who've normally been in lockstep all of a sudden start separating, and they come up with these radically different conclusions about how we, 20 centuries later, need to understand this text. And, and there's a lot of history behind that, which means i got to break this message up into two parts. So first, I'm going to give you that historical timeline. I'm going to very briefly kind of describe for you how these positions emerged, when they emerged, the context in which they emerged, and the basis upon which they're made. And then I'll show you my cards, where I'm at. You don't have to agree with me. Again, this is a very open-handed issue at Covenant. I've got deacons and pastors that don't agree with me, and I don't agree with them, and some Somehow we still work together for the kingdom together, okay? But, but I want to give you the tools to understand this today, and then I want to conclude with what should rather be rather plain just from reading these words. What can we know from Revelation 20, and how do we appropriately respond to what God has revealed? So starting what we, with what we don't know, let me give you that historical timeline. And, and it begins with really the, the first roughly 400 years of the church. For the first four centuries, which is from the time of Jesus' ascension, all the way up until the time of around St. Augustine, there really was not any systematic treatment of the end of days, meaning that when you hear prophecy teachers today go from Bible verse to Bible verse and they string together Daniel and Ezekiel and Paul's letters and Revelation and they're presenting this highly complex view of the end, that's not necessarily wrong, but nobody really did that for the first four centuries of the church. What they did have was near universal agreement on three things. The first is the resurrection of the body. The dead in Christ, 1 Thessalonians 4 says they will rise first. And there's this belief that in the end, if I'm in the ground or my ashes are on an, in an urn somewhere, that that body is going to be reunited with our immaterial selves and, and transformed and glorified into a glorified physical resist, existence. That's the, the resurrection of the body. They all believed in that. They secondly believed in the imminent return of Jesus. Everything we can see, at least, from the first four centuries means that that they believed there really wasn't anything else to wait on. They didn't think anything else needed to happen before Jesus returned. And then thirdly, they just believed Jesus would literally return. Uh, Revelation 1-7, he is coming with the clouds. Every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. This was the simple, unadulterated teaching of the early church 
for the first four centuries. And it generally, not always, but it generally also involved an understanding of Revelation 20 that after Jesus would come, there would be a literal millennial kingdom. It would last, some say that thousand years is literal, some say it's symbolic for just an extended period of time, but it would be literal, it would be manifest on the earth. Jesus would reign with his saints for an extended period of time. And that position is called historic premillennialism. Premillennialism because it says Jesus will come first and then the millennium will come. Historic because it's the earliest form of this particular teaching. And then when we get to the fifth century, there's a guy who just throws a monkey wrench into all of this. His name is Augustine. And we don't get angry with him for throwing a monkey wrench in this because he also gave us some really good ways to understand the Trinity. So we understand and we appreciate Augustine for a lot. But, but his allegorical approach to the text of Scripture led him to see this passage not as something literal in the future, but as symbolic describing a specific time that started with the ascension of Jesus and will end with the coming of Jesus. And even scholars today, like Anthony Hokema, who you'll read in this particular resource, would say, Jesus, before he even gave his disciples the Great Commission, said, all authority in heaven and earth is mine, and we take that Literally, and that means that maybe this millennium is this period of time. Uh, the genesis for that, St. Augustine. Fast forward another 1,000 years. We're in the 1600s now, the 17th century. There's a theologian named Daniel Whitby who begins to commend another view. This view says the church will advance and triumph through the world. It will usher in a 1,000-year reign before Jesus comes back. Okay, so premillennial means Jesus returns first, then there's a kingdom. Postmillennial, which is Whitby's position, says there will be an ushering in of this reign of peace, and Jesus will return at the climax of all of that. That was, by the way, also the position of Jonathan Edwards, revivalist preacher, president of Princeton, perhaps the greatest theological mind America ever produced. And then we get to 1830. And premillennialism starts to make a comeback with a British Plymouth Brethren pastor named John Nelson Darby. And he began to teach a new form of this um, that included something called a rapture of the church, that, that God's going to come for his church, catch them away. Then there's going to be seven years of tribulation and trial on the earth. It'll involve multiple nations and leaders with Israel at the heart of it all. And then at the termination of that seven-year period, Jesus, who first came with his church, will now come for his church. This is how the, the, the dispensational scholar John Wolverd uh, really, I think, captures this well by describing it that way. Now, you, you might wonder, especially if you were raised with that reality, and maybe you were raised by believing that's the only legitimate teaching, uh, you're like, where all those others come from? And really, it, it's the question of where this one come from, and how did it become so popular in the United States when it started in Great Britain? Well, Darby had a student named James Brooks. He was a Texas Presbyterian pastor. Brooks had another student whose name was Cyrus Ingerson Schofield. Anybody have a Schofield reference Bible? I got one. Um, it's, it's just, and I, and I treasure it because it was given to me by a mentor of mine when I first started out in ministry. If you know the Schofield Reference Bible, then you probably recognize first published in 1908, it disseminated all throughout North America. And one of the reasons this particular position called dispensational premillennialism is so popular is because 
it was captured in the Schofield Reference Bible and basically put into nearly every household in America starting in the 19-teens and moving forward all the way, all the way through post-World War II era. Okay? And so if you're wondering, why is that one so popular? That's why. Uh, it was disseminated all throughout the United States. Now, now, I give you that very brief, oversimplified view of all four of these. Okay? Somebody wrote a whole book on it, and even then, didn't cover every question. But I give you that to illustrate the history that's brought us to where we are today. Okay, if you wonder, why is there such differences? Should I be unsettled by that? No, not really. You, you and I stand in a stream of history that, where, where these conversations are ongoing. All right, And I've got a, a dear pastor friend of mine who calls himself a pan-millennialist. He says everything will pan out in the end. Like, I'm just like, I'm so confused. Just, you know, I, it's just going to pan out. But here's the thing. When you're a pastor, really when you're a Bible teacher of any sort and you want to teach the whole counsel of God, even when you come to texts like this, I had a Greek professor once and our assignment was to be ready because you could be called on at any moment and you would have to stand, open your Greek New Testament, read the passage in Greek that he has assigned to you the night before and, and do it with the correct pronunciation, which is really hard for a Southern boy, and then translate it and then give a brief exegesis of the passage. And, and on occasion, I mean, I never did this, but on occasion there would be a student that was unprepared or a student that worked and worked and worked and couldn't do it, and, he, and, and you would stand up and go, Dr. Freeman, I, I, you know, I'm sorry, I, I just didn't get this done. And he would sarcastically go, oh, you're going to be a wonderful pastor. Just get up and tell your people, I have no idea, go home, right? When you're a Bible teacher, and he was being a little bit sarcastic, but there's a hint of truth in this, you need to do your homework and study, and you need to land somewhere, okay? And so full disclosure, your pastor uses a pre-millennial framework, all right? That doesn't make me right, although I probably am, right? Uh, doesn't make my other brothers wrong who disagree with me around those kinds of things. I just, you just need to know as we move through this text together, that's the framework I'm using. I find the pre-millennial approach to be the best approach to understanding what John is saying here. I'm going to point out some reasons why that's the case. But here's the thing I want to point out even more. Like I said, there are pastors, deacons right here on this campus who would go, nope, you, you know, one of these days you're going to find out that our millennialism is the truth, pastor. You really are. The issue is not being right. The issue is being ready. All right? You, you get what I'm saying? This is not about winning an argument and being right. This is about having a little bit of humility when it comes to a text like this, when I come to understand people way smarter than me, been arguing about this for 2,000 years, and have come to no real universal global consensus around it, I need to approach this with some humility. It's not about being right. It's about being ready. And in the end, here's the further good news, the application is the same, no matter where you land in this. So the most important question is this, how do I live in light of what I can know from this passage? So let, let me give you three facts about the millennium. Number one, before the millennium, Satan is bound. Satan will be bound. Verse one, then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he sees the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released a little while. Now, in some sense, our amillennial brothers are right 
when they say this is happening right now. In some sense, I believe. Matthew 16, 19. Jesus says, I will give you, and he's talking there not just to his early disciples, but to the church, the keys to the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Does that sound like familiar language? And whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's not in the future. That was then, and that is now. Okay, so what that means is to the degree that you and I accurately represent Jesus, faithfully proclaim the gospel of Jesus, there's a binding and loosing authority that belongs to the entire body of Christ, which means every time our work for Jesus results in a converted soul or a new church that's planted or some domain of society that's made better by our faithful presence, we're providing glimpses of a coming day when that kingdom will be fully loosed and Satan fully bound. Now, here's the other side of that. I don't think the full expression of it's happened yet, okay? Are we in this period now? Have we been in it for 2,000 years? I, I like the amillennial position. I'll be honest, I've tried. I've tried. I've got academic colleagues of mine at Southeastern Seminary that's just like, well, you say I haven't read hard enough. And I'm like, I, I really am. I, I'm trying. I like the amill position. You know why? Because I'm the sort of personality that likes it clean and, and just neat and no other explanation is needed. And there are a lot of things even about my own position that I still have questions about. And I look at our millennialism and it's like just bing, bam, boom, and it's done, right? And that just seems clean to me. I like it. There are a couple of problems with it. First of all, you really can't make a movie about it, okay? If Left Behind were based on our millennial, the whole movie would last about four minutes, okay? So, so we can't, you know, because of that reason. But here's, here's the, the deeper reason. This binding that's described here is so effective as to prevent our enemy from deceiving the nations any longer. Now, when I look around, I see the forward progress of God's church, an explosion of the kingdom of God all over the world. But I also see an awful lot of deception, don't you? I mean a lot. Much of it even inside visible churches. And so my best understanding is that John is describing an event that is number one, still in our future, and number two, can only be brought about by the Lord himself. Doesn't mean we can't express it. Doesn't mean we can't bring manifestations of it. In fact, we had a phenomenal group of volunteers just yesterday who went down to an apartment complex that we've been serving and delivered backpacks to kids who are getting ready to start the school year. That is not just helping needy people. Brothers and sisters, that is a manifestation of the kingdom of God, the presence of the kingdom, uh, the, the, the foretaste of a time coming when there's not going to be any child in the world who's ever going to live in want or any human being on the planet who will ever have need. We can manifest glimpses of that powerfully right now but we by ourselves cannot bring the real thing. We're going to need Jesus to come back for that to happen. Okay? And so that, that's what I believe here. Here's the good news. When this moment comes, it signifies the defeat of a mammoth spiritual power. Satan is described here as a dragon. He's also described as a serpent. So the serpent part's pretty easy. If you know the history of Scripture going all the way back to Genesis, this is the, this is the same deceiver from the garden, the dragon. That one's described earlier. Look at Revelation 12, verses, verse 4. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. This is the immensity 
of the power that you and I have been fighting since the moment we believe. It's that. God's pulling back the veil here in chapter 12 and saying, if you can imagine something as awe-inspiring, fear-inducing as looking at the sky and seeing a third of the stars swept away by a tail of the dragon, that's the immensity of the power that you've been up against. It's been the source of every temptation you've ever fought and the origin of every struggle and the genesis of every threat against you. 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And what these passages in Revelation tell us is that there's coming a day on the basis of Jesus' death and resurrection through his angelic representative. This immense evil will be bound to the point of impotence and sealed up to the point of invisibility. The age of 1 Peter 5 is going to come to an end. There's coming a day when we won't suffer, when we won't be tempted, when that evil, so I think this is the first thing we need to know about the millennial kingdom. When this period of history begins, we're going to experience what no other human being since our first parents have experienced. A world without an enemy. Think about that for a minute. No enemy to oppose us. No deceiver to lie to us and betray us. No animate evil seeking to destroy us. Anybody in here as old as me remember who Flip Wilson is? What was his famous line? That's right. The devil made me do it. Well, not really, right? You can't blame the devil for the choices you make. But we do recognize his influence in our lives and in this world. And what we see here is that influence with the full arrival of the kingdom of God will disappear. So, so here's my question for you. What are we doing with our lives right now, with our professions? I'm not talking about just what you do when you show up here on Sunday. You're going you're to clock in or report to the office or whatever you do tomorrow. What are you doing with that? What are you doing with the skills God gave you, with the passions and the resources that God has given you to reveal to this world that is broken about that coming day? What glimpses of this future kingdom do people see when they look at your life beginning tomorrow morning? That's what you and I have to represent to the world. Satan will be bound. Secondly, during the kingdom, the saints will reign. Verse 4. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. Much of this is connected very closely to earlier passages in Revelation that, that we can't get into today because there's another service coming and you all want to eat lunch and all that good stuff, right? Thank you, sir. I know. Some of that comes just a couple of weeks from now. We will talk about the mark of the beast. Who is this beast? What does it all mean? And another, that'll be another time I'll lay my cards on the table and say, you, 
You don't have to always track with your pastor. That's totally fine. But, but for now, I can tell you this. John sees here the saints of the persecuted church, and they are beheaded. Now, some see that as just figurative for any kind of execution. But let's be honest, when you lose your head, you are, in the words of that great theologian Monty Python, most assuredly dead, right? You, you just, there's no way to stop this. And they are killed specifically for their refusal to worship anyone other than the Lord their God, all right? So this is, this is like Nebuchadnezzar all over again. We will not bow. But that, was, that wasn't something that deals with, well, my preference is being violated. Well, that's not religious persecution. That's not the mark of the beast. Well, I'd rather not do that. Yeah, well, that's kind of irrelevant. The issue here is, will you deny the lordship of Jesus and exchange him for another God? Whatever this mark is, it will require that, okay? Don't call stuff the mark of the beast if it's not specifically and explicitly requiring you to reject the lordship of Jesus. That's called, and this is the seminary term for it, crap theology. That's what it's called, okay? Uh, just, just don't go there, all right? So, but, but here's what they're refusing, which is a, a refusal to be marked as those who worship the beast and anyone else. This is where John starts to reveal this really sharp division. In their, during this period of time, even, most of the dead are going to stay dead. Their fate is described later. But for the faithful, those who persevered by faith in the power of the Spirit, Jesus says, John says, they came to life. Well, Jesus said that too, because I live, you will live also. This is the final and ultimate keeping of that promise. In the meantime, you might get, lose your head. That's what we're being told, right? We, we fight this lie today in our culture that tells you that following Jesus means that you should always be a winner. This is why millionaires and pro athletes and big musicians and when they become Christian, Everybody celebrates to the point that in some factions of the church, it, it appears almost as though we're making a bigger deal out of them than we are about Jesus. And there's a psycho psychological effect behind that. It's like, yeah, I got to get the guy that was in the winner's circle. I got to get the guy with the Super Bowl, the five, six Super Bowl rings. I got to get the guy who just won the NCAA championship. I, I got to get Dabo, and I love Dabo. He loves Jesus. He's, he's genuine, but there's this assumption that it's always got to be something like that, as if the cross and the overwhelming defeat of death and the bodily resurrection of Jesus isn't enough, we got to add a NASCAR trophy for people to be attracted to it. And what that does to us is we, it, it, it begins to be lost on us that there is a call to suffer. I told you at the, at the start of COVID 18 months ago, the Western church as a whole is in trouble because we have a woefully under the, underdeveloped theology of suffering. If you want to follow Jesus, it's going to cost you. It's why most people won't follow Jesus. It's why, the, it's why the road to destruction is broad. It's why the road to life is narrow and straight. But comparatively, this is the other side of this, the reward that's coming is far greater than anything these people endured and anything you and I may be called to endure for the name of Jesus. We, we see this even in Revelation. There's some debate 
around whether even some of these numbers are literal, but in, in chapter 12, verse 14, the dragon's attacks on the mother of Messiah last for three and a half years. In, in chapter 17, verse 12, the, there are 10 kings, pagan kings, their authority, it lasts for one year. The, by comparison, the reign and vindication of God's people, 10 centuries. The reward that's coming is far greater. And John isn't the first to tell us this. Look at Paul's words in 2 Corinthians 4. He says in verse 17, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. At any point in time that I stand up here, I know, whether it's on the other side of that camera or the people in this room, I am always, nearly every single week, speaking to somebody who's suffering. There's sickness, there's financial struggle, there's family dysfunction, your, your marriage is about to bust up, or you got children that are breaking your heart, or there's blended family drama that's driving you insane, you can't seem to solve it, there's death and there's loss and there's all these kinds of things, and you understandably ask why, and in, in some cases you might end up being angry with the Lord. This almost sounds heretical to upstanding evangelicals, but I'm going to tell you it's okay to be angry. That's okay. You can tell. Look, look, if you don't just confess that to him, you're lying. That's definitely a sin. So if you're angry with the Lord, tell him you're angry. Here, here's my point. His shoulders are broad enough to handle whatever you throw at him, but do not leave him. Don't leave him. To the point of losing your head, stay faithful to him. And believe him. Believe that there's a day coming, not only when this suffering is going to end, but the reign will begin. Stay faithful. Because one day you will reign. Blessed are you, partaker in the first resurrection. The saints will reign as Satan is bound. And then finally, after the kingdom, Satan will be defeated. Verse 7. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth. And that verse always makes me go, you're going to turn him loose? Like, but we're not the first people to experience stuff like that. Peter, remember that? Peter, Satan's asked my permission to sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith will not fail. And I can almost imagine Peter going, yeah, hey, thank you for your prayers. You, you said no, right? Didn't you tell him no? Job never knew what was going on. I've often asked the Lord in my prayers, please do not bring me up in a conversation between you and the devil. As I've watched Job. I've, I've read that story. I know how that ends, right? So I look at this. You're going to turn him loose? Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So, so I have no final question as to why Satan is being released, but, but at least part of the reason here has to be because he's allowed to deceive and mislead the nations one final time. There's examples of this in the history of Scripture. 
Uh, the first 14 chapters of Exodus, for example. Um, why, why go through all of that? I mean, I, my staff will tell you, like, if we need to do D in order to get something done around here, why are you dabbling around with A, B, and C? I mean, that's just, that's my philosophy. Let's just cut to it. Let's get it done. And so every single time I read about the Egyptian plagues, I go, why 10? I mean, he's God. He knows the future. He knows it with perfection. He knows eventually the whole world's going to know it's going to take the death of the firstborn to get this done, to get God's people out of Egypt, to get them justice after 400 years of slavery. So quit fooling around. Why the frogs? Why the flies? Why the darkness? Why the blood? Just kill the just kill firstborn. Let's get on with this. But, but the first 14 chapters of Exodus tell us why that happens. The Lord's not merely interested in delivering his people. He says, it's all a process of hardening Pharaoh's heart so that his rebellion against me will grow and my wrath against him that will meet that rebellion will grow with it. Because of your hard heart, you're storing up wrath. His nation is storing up wrath. Now that frightens me for people I love. Because Paul tells us exactly the same thing in the first two chapters of Romans. That they sinned, they exchanged the truth of God for a lie, they exchanged the worship of God for the worship of creatures. That then led to sexual sin, which is the epitome of idolatry. Because in sexual sin, you're not just worshiping God. Now you're worshiping another body that God created in the place of God. All of those things. And it says, God gave them over. He just he let them have what they wanted. Why? Because their hearts are hardening. And from that moment forward, he is storing up wrath against them. Sometimes you continue to rebel against God to the point that he just gives you what you want. And he turns you loose. And he gives you over to your own self. And from that moment forward, he is keeping score. Until the end when you face him. And he calls for the note. And he balances the book. We are all waiting for a day when everything gets revealed. And what we see here is that action will happen in a final and in a global way. Everyone who has refused to repent will be like Gog and Magog. Two cities that were mentioned in Ezekiel 38 and 39. Enemies of Israel who were warned just like we're being warned right now and right here. Fire will rain down on them for their opposition to God's people. Now, again, this is another, this is another tricky passage. I'll admit it to you. The, be the best research I have found on these words uh, is from the Old Testament scholar Lamar Cooper. He teaches at Criswell College in Dallas. And it is not his work in Revelation, but his work in Ezekiel that I think is very helpful. But I will warn you, even Dr. Cooper gives seven possible interpretations for this battle. It's complicated, is my point. But here's what I think we can conclude with some certainty. In the end, there will be rulers and there will be groups that follow those rulers who are going to oppose God and his people at the end of this period of time. They're going to galvanize. They're going to mobilize. They will march in solidarity against the Lord and against his elect toward a battle that will never happen. 
it, it, it's, there will be no battle. Look at verse 9. Fire came down from heaven and consumed them. It's done. It's done. I, you know, I hear paranoid Christians all the time. They, the things happen in the world that trouble them, sometimes that legitimately, rightly. I mean, there's a lot going on in our world right now that should legitimately concern us. I, I don't deny that at all, but sometimes in, in the paranoia, they, they mix their eschatology with that. They're like, we got to get ready. We got to get ready. For what exactly? There's nothing coming when he finally does all of this. There is nothing facing us that God will not ultimately all by himself put a stop to. Show me anywhere in the word of God where there's any kind of temporary action that you or I are called to take in the face of this culture to prepare for the coming of Jesus. Whatever money I got in my wallet, you can have it today if you find it. I feel that secure. I really do. It's just not there. We need to believe his words to Moses. Exodus 14, 14, the Lord will fight for you, just like he did with the Israelites. He brought them out. What did they do? Did they have to take up arms? Did they have to press for their rights? Did they have to, did they? No, the Lord will fight for you. And you have only to be silent. And out of that obedience, you obey Paul's words as well of 1 Timothy 2, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. If you want to, here's how you get ready. Okay. You ready for this? For whatever's coming, here's how you get ready for it. Be faithful to the Lord. Live with confidence that the Lord will balance. But we are learning a gargantuan lesson in this right now. If we would listen to our brothers and sisters in Afghanistan, they are coming. We know they are coming for us. Some of us have been offered an airplane ride out of here. We're not leaving. We're staying. And we will face whatever is coming because the Taliban need Jesus too. That's how you do it. That's how you get victory. That's how it comes. Be faithful. And live with confidence that when the Lord returns, those books are going to be balanced. And, and our enemy will be defeated overwhelmingly. Now, here's the other side of that. The corollary to this faithfulness is found a few verses later. Verse 15 of Revelation 20. If anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. If you carry nothing else away with you today, about the millennial reign of Jesus. You need to carry this, and you need to never, ever forget it. This period of history reveals to us more clearly than at any other time as we read the text, there are two and only two choices. You can be the beneficiary of the resurrection, or you can be the object of the second death. And it is entirely up to you. You can be faithful and sit on a throne, or you can rebel and be judged from a great white Jesus is king. And, and there's something, there's this thing about kings. When they come, they come to reign. They come to sovereignly rule. But here's the greatest news in the world. This is the most loving, sacrificial, giving, benevolent ruler you have ever known. 
so benevolent that he of his own will hung between heaven and earth for your sins and mine. And if you'll turn from those sins today and put your faith in him, he'll invite you to suffer as he did. Yeah, it's a hard life. Sometimes. Sometimes it's going to cost you. Sometimes it's going to make you wonder why. Sometimes you're going to wonder where he is. Be faithful. Continue to serve and know this. You will reign with him. You will reign with him. And we want everyone to sit on a throne one day. Would you pray with me? Lord, thank you for encouraging passages such as these that even with the disagreement and the means of interpretation, the application in the end is the same. May we simply be faithful to you. May we love you enough to die for you. Not because that in any way pays you back for what you did to us. But Lord, because a servant, is not above his master because a disciple is not above his teacher. And so, Father, with humble humility, as a pastor friend of mine told me earlier this week, any inherent power I have is only, solely, and completely in your presence. Father, that's true for any of us. So may we be present with you and you with us, and may we be faithful, and may you be our exclusive focus as we love you and as we love our neighbors and as we love each other and as we prepare for this glorious moment that one day is in our future. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.